role should culture play in the design of buildings and in the placemaking around our city centre regeneration schemes? I'm joined today by Marcus Foley from the creative agency Tommy, from Mark Davey from the placemaking consultancy Future City, and Russell Pedley, co-founder at the award-winning Assail Architecture. I'm Andrew Teacher, and welcome to PropCast. We're talking about places to live, the importance of place, culture, and lifestyle. Russell Pedley, this was a campaign that you launched with Mark some weeks back. And tell us a little bit about what you're trying to achieve here, because I suppose some people would argue that an architect's job is to design in that culture from day one. But what you're trying to say to us today is that there needs to be a slightly different approach if we're to bake in culture and ensure that developments, specifically residential build-for-rent schemes, are more fit for purpose and more future-proofed and more resilient. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's something that, as a practice, which we've been doing a considerable amount of build-to-rent communities, and now we've designed and constructed about 5,000 homes in various communities. And so that's actually given us an opportunity now to do post-occupancy reviews of those schemes. And what we've learned from some of those schemes is that there are societal changes going on. There's clearly digital technology changes happening. And cultural placemaking processes that are probably done at the wrong end of the design process. And, of course, community engagement is another aspect. Do you, where, what you're saying, essentially, is that these things are often a bit of a bolt-on. And after you've got a design and you've got a plan, someone then fishes out a few grand to go and run some sort of cultural audit and shovel in a bandstand and a coffee shop or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the early days, there was a lot of guesswork gone into, for example, in built-to-rent communities, what sort of amenities should be in there. Because to be true... There no one had any data, right? Yeah, exactly. Whereas now we've actually got that information, we've got that data. And I think what I've noticed from some of the schemes is that our anticipation of how these places would be used is different and it's changing and we can talk about that in the moment but you mentioned about getting it at the right end of the process yeah and for us as architects as designers and you said should it be our job it's our job to design obviously for the customer and the user and of importantly the client's brief Mm. and it's getting that right from a cultural perspective from day one baked into the business case that i believe needs to happen Mm. so so mark davey from future city so What does this mean in process? So how does the process work now and how should it be done? At the moment, what will happen is the architect will lead the programme and they'll have a team around them, which I would say, you know, I've been working in this sector about 15 years. It hasn't really changed, I don't think, one jot really. So, you know, you have your architect, landscape architect, highways engineer, your agents, your consultation people, PR, and so on. And that team effectively absorbs in whatever the zeitgeist is. But on the whole, it's very much a hardware-driven idea, isn't it? You design the buildings, you kind of know what the product and the market is. We are talking a little bit about residential. So Mm. inevitably, there's some ground floor units that no one knows what to do with. So historically, when the market was buoyant, an agent would go out and try and sell them or lease them. That's fallen through the floor. So we now have this issue where you've got kind of hardware solutions but no real sort of sense of the vision or the narrative for that place. Was that because property people don't have the skills to do that or they just don't care? I think it's because historically it just wasn't that important. I mean, when I first started working, say, for instance, with Barclay Group in the sort of mid-noughties, you know, effectively they had a very clear market for their product. 
the market now has changed from sale to rent. And so rental is a completely well, different... Barclays model hasn't. They're still selling homes. They're still selling homes. And in fact, BTR is still a relatively small part of the market. But, you know, if we can see around us why that market is going to change, just look at the economics, you mm. know. So what's happened for me, I think, is the difference now between a place you want to live in, but you might not be there for very long. So a kind of rental market creates a sort of nomadic, fluid kind of use particular group of people of a certain age group. I mean, let's call them millennials. But there is that millennial But it's group. not, though, is it? Because, uh, I mean, one of the first schemes that I worked on in this space 11 years ago was the Archway Tower, Vantage Point. It's a pretty dead bit of London in real terms at the time. A lot of cultural history there. And everyone said, oh, yeah, you know, this would be full of millennials. It was full of all sorts of ages. So I challenge you on that point because I think a lot of these schemes, particularly in cities like London, Birmingham and Manchester, that have got such a dense cities, very dense buildings. You've not just got a bunch of sort of 29-year-old TikTok-watching, Netflix-watching kids these are whole you know, adults you've got divorcees you've got retirees you've got all sorts of people i think you're being too generalized really i think the market in london we're talking about i think majors in cities yeah. the dominant market is millennial that's not to say that this is not for everyone and that the silver surfers and as you say divorcees and others who are not part of that group but you know to answer the question you asked was what's different how, how is it changing and i think what's changing is that the narrative the reason for why things are there is becoming more dominant because the market and not just market, but also people's expectation of life is changed radically. Where I live, who I'm with, who I want to be. So you don't with. just want a box with a no. shower and a coffee shop in the bottom. You used to get a brochure, didn't you? And it would give you a CGI and everyone was holding hands and pointing at things. Open I, your eyes and guess where you are. Well, you wouldn't be able to tell because they all look the same, right? I love that. <laughs> I, I'd love to have an exhibition of CGIs and expectations design, you know, the CGI gallery. But, you know, that was... Uh, I you think didn't I'd really... slit my throat before I went to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marcus Foley is... I'm going to refer to you henceforth as the resident cyberpunk in the room. We can go into a bit more of that later. <laughs> Marcus Foley from Tommy. So you're a creative agency. You work with all sorts of big brands, fashion brands, social media brands, doing all sorts of fun things for them. What's your interest here? Mark and I got chatting over dinner, as we invariably do, and we started talking about you know, what's going on in the out-of-home space within the experience economy, experiential, and various subjects we've gone on to. We start talking about gaming. Like, actually, why isn't there a gaming district in any of the cities? There's this mass cross-culture and exciting things going on that's driving billions and billions in revenue, mm. and yet we're not meeting those needs of them anywhere, apart from maybe a pop-up experience. What do you or mean by sing- gaming? Do you mean, like, Akihabara in Japan and Tokyo? Or, or Well, gaming's changed. Gaming's for everybody, right? And the pandemic has definitely propelled us forward by seven years. So families are gaming. We should have the time to play But it's games, no longer lazy young men. That's a misconception. 50% roughly of gamers are women. And there's incredible things happening in the gaming space. And it's really interesting when you look at the cultures identified within gaming entertainment, fashion, beauty, music, sport. Mm. You know, we referenced that. So we start talking about that. It's quite an interesting opportunity because we were talking about both loving football. You know, these football stadiums get filled out with e-sports events. It's phenomenal. It's when you look at what that generates and think about that as a strategy as part of a district, it's the volume of people you could be continually driving under different programmes mm. that's quite interesting and lacking. So it's one of the and conversations. What, so what would say help listeners draw the link then? So I, I get that. I mean, I live in Highbury. I'm not an Arsenal supporter, but I do wander past the ghost town is the Emirates Stadium most of the time. Yeah. It's empty, you know, ridiculous amount of time. And I absolutely register what you're saying. I think yeah. my, my first paid journalism job 
25, six years ago. It was on Nintendo magazine. So I've got a lot of fondness for gaming, although I probably don't really remember anything over the last 20 years in gaming. I, I don't have the time. But <laughs> help listeners understand what the hell this has got to do with Build to Rent. Yeah, really good question. Retail strategies, right? So first of all is digital product that retailers are trying to sell to gaming audiences and they don't know how to reach them. There are physical manifestations in terms of retail and trainer culture, fashion culture that comes from that. So you can have retail outlets, independent outlets. Nike might want to do bespoke things, one-off things. But to what ends? Because I suppose the challenge, and Mark Davey pointed this out, is that the sector is still quite nascent, quite small. Mm. So if I'm Nike, I'm pretty much the world's biggest shoe brand and I'm flogging trainers to millions of people. How many people am I going to reach by opening a shop in the bottom of a resi scheme in Salford. Well, here's the thing. If you've got the right programs, you could be driving thousands and thousands of people a week to that district, right across categories from young people, young kids and families, right through to teens and right through to generations up to 40 and 50 probably. And what's the benefit then for that property investor? Why does he care about that? Because the big issue now is that if I'm creating experiences or I want to be a sense of belonging to a cause or some idea... You don't want permanence, you actually want temporary. So in fact, the beauty of taking some of these kind of commercial or non-resi spaces is filling them with activity and content that's changing all the time. So a bit like pop-up culture in high school. Pop-up with purpose, but pop-up where you actually do something... Sounds a little bit woke, pop-up with purpose. I hate pop-up. I I prefer pop-up with permanence, a bit more permanent. I like the idea of seeding (laughs) ideas. But you were saying before, Mark Davey, about you referenced the fact that a lot of these rental schemes are quite nomadic. And particularly for student housing, where people are going to be there maximum a couple of years, right? They don't necessarily care about the underlying culture of a place. They're there because it's 15 minutes tube ride or bus ride from wherever it is they're going to. Well, if I give you an example, actually, a good example would be somewhere like Wembley Park, which is the Quintain scheme. Mm. So Wembley Park, huge BTR scheme. I think, is it 10,000? Yeah, 10,000 10, units. In what is especially a suburb. Not going to win any architectural awards, though, is it? Is it all about awards, though? Is that the only purpose of building stuff? Well, no, and I'm just trying to have an enjoyable place. I'm not a huge fan of Wembley. I think it's a ghastly place to hang out. But then it fulfills the need for certain audience, doesn't it? That's the point. Uh, When did you ask go? I asked go. I'm trying to think. It would have been for a concert of some sort. Mm. It's amazing over there. I mean, it's really successful. The Olympic Way has been completely transformed. It's absolutely crowded from day and night. People from Brent are really starting to use that as a kind of urban quarter. They've got independents moving in. Mm. The Royal Philharmonic is moving in. But it's a good example of a place... Wembley is a great example of a place that could have benefited from the very thing that you guys are describing today, right? If, if but someone it is, is benefiting from it. Well, it's not, but it's been doing in exactly the opposite way from which you've described. You, no, no, we wrote the strategy for it, so I think it is doing it. No, it's not empty like around the Emirates, as you said. You made that it's point. It's not empty at all. Wembley, because I go down there during the but day and I take point, the kids Mark up there. Is, is that these things should be done before the things are built. And Wembley is a great example of something that's been desolate for the last 50 years. It's coming to life now. It's less awful than it was, but it's still not a hugely exciting place to go. I really disagree. I, I just think we have you involved in it from quite an early stage when Quintain got involved. Not the bit you're maybe you're thinking of is that Wembley classic, way. the Wembley way, the wind yeah. blowing litter down the middle, the market in the middle but, of but yeah, it. Exactly, but but it isn't like that now. And what's actually happening is it's being transformed into a place of activation. So all of the design, so again, to pick up the whole point, We work with the landscape architects, the architects and the client to make sure that space there could be multi-purpose. And what's happened is it's already attracting huge events are going there, which wouldn't have gone there before, because actually we did have an influence on the landscaping. Because of that, we've managed to move the Royal Philharmonic are going to go there. We've got a great gaming offer, by the way, and work with young kids and do a whole range of really exciting digital stuff. They're going to have their new headquarters there and their rehearsal space. 
that will trigger a little ecosystem of culture and music-based businesses that will go around them. So in a way that we were able to get in early enough to make some big moves before it was too late. And there was one moment where I think the RFP was going out for the new Olympic way. And we were able to turn the language from let's do an upgrade of landscape to let's create a cultural space where large things can happen. So it's, you know, I think it's early days. I mean, it's, it's a huge scheme and it's yeah, halfway but you, through. You can, listening to what Mark and Marcus have just said, you know, from my perspective as a designer, we've got to design these places and building in that flexibility is important. And also to remember, we're not just building this community for the here and now. Mm. We're trying to anticipate the life of this building over the next 40, 50, maybe even 100 years. Well, that's impossible, isn't it, Russell? Well, it's not impossible because, you know, one common denominator is obviously humankind and human nature. Yeah, I mean, hopefully people are still going to want the Royal Philharmonic in 100 years. But I mean, it's. uh, (laughs) I think we can probably agree that classical music and music in general will still be around but i suppose that- oh, at our event we had the other day a uh, build to rent forum actually the guy from the royal philharmonic was really interesting he was telling us all the video and gaming music that they were composing and why so, Wembley was important and why they moved over to Wembley yeah really well, from central over. london yeah I, I think the point is that there is definitely something going on, whether it's influenced by the cyber culture, the fact that we're all cyborgs, influenced by a mobile phone, whatever. This is changing human nature and the way we live. Do you not I- see a reaction to that, though? I mean, let's take Facebook, now called Meta, and the response to this whole wormhole that Mark Zuckerberg's going down into with the metaverse that no one really seems to be, certainly from an investor perspective, seems to be on the train with. Is there really a sense that that is the whole future or do you get a sense that people actually maybe want to live a bit more in the real world? No, what I'm interested in, obviously, is that the manifestation of that and what does it mean for the real world? And my point is that that is heavily influencing the physicality of the kind of spaces that we so, need. So give us some examples. So you've designed schemes for the likes of Granger and TFL, for Legal and General. You've won awards for those, Resi Awards for those, Essential uh, Livings, Scheme Union, Wolf in Greenwich, all these huge build-to-rent communities that are sales being behind. So describe, if you can, for listeners, how something like the eSports point that Marcus Foley was talking about, how would that manifest in the design of a rental apartment project? Yeah, so I can think of one example, which is what's happened in the past, where it was, I think, a Black Horse Mills project we did for Legal and General. There was a tennis court put into the development. To be honest, it was a trial to see if that was something that would be popular. What was quite interesting was through their social media, the WhatsApp, a whole group of people got together and said, look, we want to formalise this activity and actually have tournaments and have our league table and all of that. So in some ways, the cyberspace has helped create a community within the community that Mm. is focused around a physical asset. And it was so popular that, in fact, I was talking to the operator the other day. They tried to explore whether they could hold other events in this space. But it is so popular and that social group that's formed around that are so proud of the fact that they've got this. Now, if you could export that, I mean, I know, Marcus, we were talking the other day about, and I think you've mentioned Nike, uh, actually looking for physical space in towns and cities where they can hold those events. Now, whether that's a public piazza space or whether it's an indoor space that is deep in plan, can't be used for anything else... You know, I'm interested in what kind of physical spaces we need to be building into that can be used flexibly, as Mark has pointed out, 
into these communities. That, that's the point I guess I was trying to make is at the moment, I mean, I've been in the business about 15 years. I'm not from the sector. I'm from a cultural sector. But what was struck me was that there was a kind of thing by rote. There is a box. It will have some units in to live in. And at the bottom, things will be set out. And someone will determine what those things are. Yeah, yeah. and you'll have a bit of a fight over whether it's a Tesco or a coffee shop. Exactly. It's a creche. It's a gym. It's a Tesco. And you almost see it, you know, everyone just drawing in the boxes. Now, our argument is that that has got to stop, particularly the build-to-rent area, is giving people permission to be a bit more radical. So, for instance, instead of saying, we have some units, how do we fill them? We should say... What do we want to happen here? And how do we design for flexibility? How do we make this whole site a much more fluid, interactive space mm. to reflect the world we're in? Which is much more fluid. Look at the in the city of London, you know, try and sell a tower. Now. How do we yeah. share the pen so it's full of commercial opportunities? Yeah, I mean, for- I, and I remember having this debate with Essential Living and their architects, it was grid architects that did the archway building. And there's a wonderful double height atrium in the foyer of that building. You know, a huge amount of cultural art, music history around there. But I mean, it's a massively underused space at the bottom of that building. And what came back, I think, at the time was, oh, you know, security and we yeah, can't open down and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But I bet but, the first images in it had everyone in there holding hands and enjoying it, it themselves. Didn't, it didn't have that, but it just struck me it was commercially a bit of a waste because there's no real decent, you know, coffee breakfast places around. You could have made a bustling New York diner type of thing in there that would just suck people in. You do speakeasy type of it's setup. It's because historically the developer always saw themselves as controlling everything. So we've all been yeah. in the square where you've got the big screen and the branded deck chairs watching Wimbledon. And a statue. Uh, uh, you know, and a statue. And then it gets taken down. The difference now that's interesting is there's a much more collaborative kind of approach now, I think, between the cultural sector, which has the IP, that has the ideas, that has the authenticity, and the property sector that maybe at last realises they cannot do it. So I'm sure if the market suddenly boomed again and suddenly thought they could flog the units for full well, dollars. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just about whether it booms in that way. It's important that we have resilience of this space so that they can accommodate a number of things, especially when the economy is testing everybody on these things. But as an example of what you've just said, when you mentioned the central living scheme in Islington and the large foyer space, when we did our research in multifamily housing about 10 years ago in the States, we went to Boston and I was shown around one scheme, I think it was called Factory 63, and the whole entrance foyer was basically a gallery and there was a programme of events going on and residents would pass through the gallery on the way to their apartment. And of course, it encouraged a certain type of resident to live there clearly arts influenced and each month each week or whatever there'll be different events they'd automatically get invited to the launch events and that and it was a whole cultural opportunity and really doubling up that space Mm. yes it was the entrance to their home but it was also giving something back to the local community yeah and actually in fairness to archwood it's a great scheme and there is a lot of local art along the corridors of that building but i'm interested russell pedley from an architect's perspective how does your client make money out of this? So I suppose in a landscape where particularly in London and increasingly in Manchester, land is quite tight. You know, Black Horse Mills is a wonderful scheme right next to the reservoirs. And, and I you know, grew up in East London, so I'm familiar with that part of town. And there really wasn't anything there until that development popped up. You do have the luxury of a big footprint there on that site, which isn't something you would get in somewhere like Islington or Clapham or most parts of London. So how do you accommodate some of what Mark and yourself have described in a typical site? So in a typical site, the ground plane, that connectivity to the local community and so forth, is probably unsuitable for residential 
uses because of privacy and daylight and so forth, and also a deep plan. So that automatically gives you a front door to the public realm and the spaces around it. So how does that space generate income? Now, obviously, in terms of the build-to-rent aspects, getting 97.5% occupancy is the holy grail. You've got to keep those residents there. Those that leave need to be replaced. And so keeping that happening is a priority. And one of the biggest attractors is what's happening and what's going on at the ground floor and the activity and the events that are happening there. So I think if that is a dead space, for example, as you just described on another scheme, it's not a very attractive place. I want to move and I'm going to go to the scheme down the road that's actually got parties going on or whatever it's every got a, night. I know, think it's, it's another thing, which is the value system for the BTR is different. They've almost become like the great estates. They've become a long-term owner. So whereas you build to sell, you build it, you sell it, you put a management company in. What's interesting with BTR, of course, is they've got to have a much longer-term view and they've got to find new skills. They've now got to manage an estate. They've got to manage content and, and activity and animation and so on. So I think that's been the difference in the market for us. What and I- is there a risk in that often the operation of these buildings is done pretty much with, you know, it's a very difficult business to make any real margin in. It's very lowest common denominator in many cases. I mean, they're good and bad and average, aren't they? Like in any business sector. But I think you've got some great premium schemes, such as the Essential, the LNG, and a lot of the Moda Living projects. We're doing Get Living. I mean, we've been working on the Get Living East Village scheme, the old Athletes Village. And again, there's a great example there of shell and core ground floor units being turned into Lab E20, which is a kind of pop-up, but it's better than that. It's actually celebrating promoting young fashion designers around sustainability, waste, and ESGs. I think we're on their ninth organisation in there. It's been highly successful. Mm. From the point of view of the client, it's been completely full the whole time. The residents are using it. It's got them incredible attention, and it's an authentic structure it's running itself it's not being done by the developer and it's running itself is the key word Mm. and that's the holy grail ultimately built to rent operators and clients and that you know if they can get to a situation where they can get that activity and in effect it runs itself by the residents by the local community and the stakeholders and that's Mm. where if you like social engagement is really important and finding that out at the beginning of the design process so that you can bake that into the scheme from day one, I think needs to happen much more. And how do you measure this, Russell Pedley, in terms of many of your clients and many of the big investors in not just build to rent, but all parts of the property landscape? Everyone's got an ESG strategy. Everyone is benchmarking this, that, and the other. We talk a lot on this podcast about all sorts of elements of this, but it strikes me that from what you three are all saying, there is an opportunity to really up the level of investment on the S, on the social side of things. But I'm interested in how one might measure this because these things obviously don't come for free. So if I am a pension fund and I'm investing in a 400-unit block of housing and I'm being told, well, I've got to pay for a bandstand, a tennis court, a gaming room or whatever, I'm going to have to account for this. There's a bloke with a spreadsheet somewhere in the room tapping on it saying, can we afford this? What's the cap rate for this <laughs> for this yeah. gaming I mean, I think- room? So how do you – it's two questions. Where's the payback financially – And how are you able to report this in a meaningful way that's not going to be shot down in bits by someone like me? 
Right, okay. Well, those are all very tough It's the right question, but it's so dysfunctional, the question, in some ways, because that's the way the market look at it, quite rightly, because that's the question your client's going to ask you. That's a fair response, Marcus Foley, from Tommy, but uh, let Russell answer the question. Then I'll let you chip in, because I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think you make a very good counterpoint, but I suppose, ultimately, I'm here to put the case of an investor, because this is how investors will think yeah, about it. 100%. Yeah. And we can say it's not a great world, but that is how things are so i don't think i think you know for us as a practice when we're designing these communities and developing the designs the focus is very much on net operating income rather than capital values and that means the operational cost is off the bottom line so all the things we've just talked about is really important and if you can get a degree of community involvement and different communities helping to manage those spaces then that makes it clearly much more efficient and more enjoyable for the residents but your other point which was an important one and we now know from working with investors that they are very keen on understanding what their esg ratings are whether they're on the hunt for the gresby rating or whatever it is that they're looking for and a cultural strategy, the backbone of it is really setting out all those social issues that you mentioned. And I think that's another example where not only will it frankly help them with their ESG ratings, a cultural strategy, but also it'll help them get plan consent. It'll demonstrate, you know, as part of the design reports and the reports that go in with the planning application, will actually demonstrate from day one how they're going to engage with the local community. Mm. And that so will actually, give them so there's, there's potentially then quite a good payback if absolutely. you can do And don't forget the UN sustainability goals. You know, I worked out when we did this event at the Build to Rent Forum that, you know, if you looked at the 17 sustainable development goals, a good thorough cultural strategy actually sets out strategies for about nine of those goals it's interesting isn't it we've been talking to a major investor recently who was talking very much about the things you've just described but what's interesting is that a lot of the individuals now moving to these places are also having the same conversation so maybe for the first time what an investor wants and what an individual wants are actually quite similar they mm. actually want the same thing so that's the big change for us the language is different from both ends whereas before i would have made my case about a cultural strategy to an investor and exactly as you were saying you know looking at me like you know this is going to cost me a fortune why would i do it mm. and there's also other value systems in there planning marketing community buying getting the community involved is now a good thing it used to be something which is a problem i think for developers now they I mean, want what, i mean what about I, we haven't really talked about and this goes back to something else i was involved with some years back launching a business called space hive which was the world's first civic crowdfunding business where you shared the cost online of civic projects and a big part of what we were trying to do with that business as a social business was to just to think about some of these social problems that do have both a strong economic and social payback. So, for example, if you think about the number of youth clubs that have been closed over the last 15 years, right, what is the cost to the criminal justice system of kids that would otherwise not get into crime, gang culture, who get called into that because there's nowhere else for them to go? How are some of what you're describing able to help with some of those sorts of issues? And they're going to get worse over the next actually, couple of years. One of the images we showed up was the new, you might have seen this one, is the Nike's takeover of basketball courts under their Wings community programme, which is investing in youth. Yeah. They've got incredible spaces and they're investing in those to feel great to bring young kids in to do sport, 
building community programs around them. And they're taking over disused places across, I think right across Europe. And well, it's, I mean, there's lots globe. of multi-use games arenas, isn't there? Yeah, but so it's really interesting like, using a brand to invest in something that gives something back to the youth, which I think part of the point you were talking about there. And then how well, you I have guess the spaces. point I'm interested in, Marcus, is how what you're doing can have a real measurable impact. If we're thinking yeah. about social value, yeah. and everyone's got all these bullshit benchmarking schemes that get rolled out, and they are mostly seven shades of bullshit in many, many, many cases. But I'm interested in where someone that I'm working with, we can sit down with them and say, you know, we've taken these kids from here, we've upskilled this group of individuals, we've helped this group of individuals, we've helped improve social health, educational crime outcomes mm. through something. And then, you know, back to what Mark was saying, through a blend of hardware and software by having a multi-use games arena that we bought and a program which can be run however it's run on a notice board or in the mm. metaverse, I don't really care. But some program then does that. Yeah, because I think what would happen is you're using the power of something like, let's stay on eGaming because yeah, gaming is yeah. a really good one. You've got the power of the brands who want to invest in there who would come in and invest in these big programs and they would offer mentorship programs, educational programs and pay for those things as part of what the changing face of sort of advertising and brand activation. Because mm. right, we're saying brands need to turn up in a new way. So, so, how does, so it's an interesting point. Let's go down this rabbit hole a bit more, yeah. Marcus. So how does that work in progress? So I am a developer. Yeah, I've got a site somewhere. I'm looking at getting planning for that site. I'm covering my eyes about inflation costs at the minute. But let's just say I ignore cost inflation construction. I'm ignore reality, you mean. Gonna, yeah, yeah, ignore reality. But <laughs> so how do I get to this promised land of connecting with a brand, connecting with the Blade Runner world that you described earlier mm. in, in sort of cyberpunk land, where I can connect all these things and get my architect to design me something and, and connect it with, with brands and, and create real meaningful social outcomes rather than just yeah. tick boxy sort of stuff interestingly it'd probably you know the starting point in the real short form quick form to get to that's like you know you'd need some kind of gaming council who really understood the whole industry and all the aspects of it representing well, where do you, you go to find that because it's very so where do you get the where, where the hell do you find a gaming council well no you'd have to create one that's the, you'd have to bring the different perspectives part and bring of the in those people strategy. as part of the culture strategy create the, the gaming the, council your planning group right so you need to bring these people in who understand this audience because they can unlock massive investment for you because look at the brand activations and the billions of dollars going into gaming and the people want to reach hard to reach demographics and that's what it's all about mm. these people come in so if you've got a good gaming council someone who understands that who you know some people go well what's going on with gaming where other people go oh yeah i know i can get forty thousand people in here next weekend into my whole district and then a brand's going to go i'll pay for that here's three hundred thousand dollars the impact that has trickles down into mm. putting programs on for people for free or within communities and that's how it happens so there's probably these logical steps it's a really interesting mm. question getting into the functional of how you do that but then having the spaces there for people to activate whatever that looks like right so you i'm know, just struggling with how that in the real world how does this then work with regard to a, a residential i suppose it depends well, on the space right? so going back to the beginning the strategy is historically if there was ever a cultural strategy and it's now a term that's been bandied around it was something that was retrofitting what was already determined yeah and that was yeah. my criticism earlier with, yeah. with regard wembley well yeah and the original wembley scheme was like that and the new wembley scheme has got that strategy in place so yeah. it will actually work because we were in at the beginning yeah but obviously it's a massive scheme and it's going to take 10 15 years to do so i guess the what we're saying now is the new strategy should be in at the beginning it should write the scripts from the beginning as to what that design should be trying to do so in 2022 if we're saying 
gaming is a great idea because it's flexible. It brings large numbers in. They will buy coffee. The mm. people living in the buildings are interested in it. Let's just say gaming, but it could be out sport. It's be a not million. just game. No. It's art culture and culture is a, as part of gaming. Exactly, because we're just talking about gaming at the moment. But let's say that's one of the factors. That strategy should then feed into the decisions about how that space works. So your landscape architect, rather than creating mm. a beautiful... I guess if the residents are that into gaming, they're probably not ever going to go and see the landscape, are they? So <laughs> no, they'll go <laughs> But they'll be in whatever that sits around you. Just to make sure you've got well, good, you good, might power, be good power supply to your building. Andy, that depends what the game is. It might be a biodiversity event. I have no idea. But You're obviously not point. a PlayStation 5 user. Right? No, no. Yeah, but so no like, clearly not. Look at all the spaces that are opening up now with the football experiences and mini golf experiences and Absolutely. all the things for kids. I mean, like these are just recessory things to fill up buildings when there's not nothing else but i think because you could talk about gaming for an hour just to give a perspective yeah. to an audience right but the point is that actually gaming comes in all shapes and forms and it's both digital experience and active experience and it can mm. be physical and digital in the same experience it, it can also i mean we're working on projects with major art galleries and artist studio we're working on programs with fashion designers and young fashion emerging fashion businesses mm. we're working on projects with musicians who have got rehearsal and dirty space to work in. We're working on projects with fabricators. And that's one of the big, big problems I've seen. It's just a lack of rehearsal space. A lot of them have well, been Well, exactly. Sharp. I mean, we had a meeting recently with a major cultural organisation. I was surprised by how many of the organisations that are showing in this building, they're running out of little basements in church halls and so on. They don't have great rehearsal space. So for a developer with lots and lots of you know empty commercial space, Rehearsal space for an opera house or bands or whatever just makes sense. The point is, though, in not doing it pop up, it's got to be strategic because otherwise it just falls out. Yeah, it's got to be a long term strategy. Now, mine comes from a place of ignorance in your industry, right? Because I'm outside the industry, I come from the advertising industry. But I just look and go, what's with all the dead space everywhere and why? And this is the point when we did the talk and going back to the Netflix Stranger Things experience, and you're right, it's really hard to find those spaces in cities. But we took over a district in Jakarta, but the 26,000 people coming in, what it did for the local businesses in that short space of time in three days is brilliant, right? That's prosperity. What then people are sharing back out onto social media meant it was trending on Twitter and nationally. So if people saw that and it was a long-term thing, people were then mentally mm. thinking, I want to go there. Then, you know, we made the comparison. Where's the Stranger Things experience here? It's in a disused car park in Brent Cross, right? Well, then what does that do for local retail? What does that do for the coffee shops, the independent retailers who are really struggling? And that's just about this thing. that. But it's only a burst, though, isn't it? And that's the problem. It's only a burst. It could be long-term strategy. Now, this is the dysfunctional thing that I'm going to say, which is going to sound really stupid to most people, especially to people that, when you ask those right questions. Are we thinking about how much we can make out of Netflix to put a Stranger Things experience, or should we be giving them the space because it's the prosperity to drive for the whole area that you bring those landmark type things in? Well, the problem that's I reverse think, thinking. It's a fair point that the problem I think where this runs into a bit of a headwind of reality mm. is that in very few cases will a whole district be owned by a single entity. Yeah. So you've got yeah. obviously the Great Estates, Cadogan Estate, Grosvenor. Howard de Walden mm. in London, the typical great estates, you know, you've got large schemes owned by the likes of Argent and some of the funds occasionally, but more than not, you're talking about an owner of one or two buildings. And, they, yeah, and that's probably the depressing fact, right? Because that means we just keep building and having dead spaces across the country. But it's a good point, Marcus, and I absolutely register and agree with the point you're making. Mm. But there's a reality to it, and you're right, you know, that's the... Mark, what were you going to say? 
No, I was just, I was saying it's interesting, I think, the appetite now for developers, even in our straightened times, to be more creative. I mean, I was thinking of the City Island scheme. We were involved in the Ballymore scheme, where the English National Ballet have moved to a new building. So there, the funding arrangement is that Ballymore have built the building and the EMB have been able to release funds to be able to run it. And that in itself has then triggered other organisations moving onto the City Island site. It's, mm. it's helped their residential marketing and so on. And so, you know, I'm not saying these things are perfect, but they're a new paradigm. They're not the old idea of the poorly funded arts council. And they're not going to get any more. Yeah, I mean, there's a big, well, there is a big a, funding gap. It's a disaster, with, you know. So. Um, but is there a degree to which artists don't want to feel they're being used to flog overpriced residential in a sort of slightly... And, and I, I think the old, you location. know, I remember years ago when we first started doing this, they, you know, there used to be this thing about, oh, we're tricking planners into giving, you know, another skyscraper by putting an artist or putting a piece of art in. I think we're just, it's way more sophisticated than that now. And the GLA themselves are pushing developers to find creative spaces for artists and artisans. So it's a much more complex thing now. I think we all realise But what, what so. needs to happen in terms of policy? Because we talked about music rehearsal spaces being canned. And often, and Russell, this is something we've talked about before, I think, on this podcast years ago, is around developing and designing schemes next to clubs, next to music venues, where there's always this standoff with the planners, with the licensing authorities. So my question is, what needs to change from a planning and a licensing perspective to make some of these things more workable? Well, I don't think it's policy. I mean, the skill in terms well, of... Well, there is. I mean, you could protect yeah, but culture. It, it, they do in Europe. If we're there, going to protection. make our cities work and vibrant, we need to come up with design solutions that allow neighbours of contrasting interests to work together. And I think at the end of the day, that's down to designers designing those places to design out those issues about acoustics, about vibration. I mean, one thing we're doing at the moment is we're working with Connected Living London and designing 500 homes on top of Nine Elms tube station. So there is obviously lots of activity going to be there, but there's going to be vibration and that. We can only create a tranquil, great place to live through technology by designing out the vibration issues. Mm. And the same would happen if you have a club in the ground floor of a residential building. You build a box within a box and then put residential on top. And we've just recently done... But the residents will often kick off about the people coming out of the clubs at four in the morning, though, won't they? Yes, but if you're going to live in the city and you've made that choice to live in the city, for me, there's... Now, obviously, it's got to be controlled in terms of it can't be extreme, but that is part of city life. There's an interesting example about planning changes. So we're working at the moment in the City of London. City of London, you know, has changed this idea now the Destination City programme mm. that they've brought in. And so who's that with, Mark? So we have a number of projects with different developers in the City of Which London. Which developers is? So I've done NDAs on some of them at the moment. But the, is it not in the public sphere if it's got planning application in? Not yet. Okay. So, But to give you some insight into what's changing there is that the planners are demanding robust cultural strategies in which your naming partners, everything is contracted, the funding is in place. You can't go in there and say, we'd probably... Speculatively build a box and hope we, somebody comes up with some funding. We might put a gallery in and we could put okay. some art in. Yeah, how it, many t- and, and I mean, honestly, I, mean, I can't emphasize how tough it is now. You've got to really have it, everything set up. It's got to be enshrined in the design, in the master planning and so on. The funding and contractual part of it's all got to be in place. 
So what the City of London planners do, the others will watch and follow. And we've worked recently in Lambeth, the same. So there is a sense now of the, the 106 used to be the way to get the art. Yeah. But that was kind of shambolic. What we're now looking at is saying, as a developer, we want you to be part of what's happening in our borough. And we need you to contribute to that, not just put some cash in a tin, but actually be a physical design creative partner to us. I genuinely think that's where it's No, but that's a good thing. So look, just to bring things to a close, Russell Pedley from a sale, what should be the three headline points that developers, investors wanting to embed culture from day zero have to consider? Mark identified it at the very beginning is actually get that cultural strategy do your audit even before the designers started find out what's going on in the area placemaking is used far too loosely in my view my view is that the place already exists our job is to enhance it so to do that you've got to find out what's going on there and do that from a cultural perspective just as you would do from comparables in terms of financial perspective just as you would do in terms of understanding what the local biodiversity is it's just as important to me to do the cultural audit as well as the landscape audit as well as the survey of the site as well as the viability assessment in terms of rents and so forth so doing it from day one and therefore bake it in at the very beginning Mm. that's russell pedley from a sale thank you also to marcus foley creative agency tommy Mark Davey, boss of Future City. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to Propcast on SoundCloud, Amazon, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can obviously keep checking propertyweek.com for news and analysis. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again soon.